It's uh, Philippians 1, chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. It's on page 830 in the Red Pew Bibles. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus of Philippi, together with overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Uh, let's bow in prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, thank you for your Bible. We thank you that it's so true and it speaks to our, uh, into our lives, uh, the truth about Jesus and guides us in how we ought to be living. And we pray for ourselves, we pray for the children, and we pray that uh, we would be soaking ourselves in your word and by your spirit that you would be uh, giving us all spiritual insight and understanding that we would live lives that are worthy of you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do you have so many men in their 40s in your church? That was the provocative question that a, a Christian leader asked a pastor friend of mine when he was visiting his church one Sunday morning. Why do you have so many men in their 40s in your church? Uh, he was making a point, really. Uh, men in the church, men in their 40s in the church, even up front, even leading, that's amazing. That's stunning. Uh, his point to my pastor friend was that this was actually something to give... Um, uh, thanks and, and give praise to God for because uh, these were men who were staying on track as Christians. Now when you think about it, uh, consider the journey that uh, Christian men go through. A young Christian man who's perhaps in his 20s, uh, maybe he was raised in a Christian family or uh, he's become a Christian in his teens, perhaps because someone invited him along to youth group and he heard the gospel and responded. And uh, now in his 20s, he's uh, keen, he's active, 
Uh, he's engaged in church. He's uh, engaged in encouraging people in their faith. He uh, gets along on Friday nights to help with the youth ministry and so on. He's keen. He's, he's an asset to the church and he's glorifying God. But as life kind of rolls on uh, into his late 20s and uh, into his 30s, uh, marriage is then followed by responsibility, the responsibility of, of family life, uh, the responsibility of, of a mortgage, uh, a career, the success and the uh, temptations of um, the, the temptations of success and the stresses of failure and so on. So that by his mid-30s, he's kind of kind of edging outwards more to the to the to the periphery of church life not quite so involved anymore not quite so engaged uh, and decisions about his marriage and who he marries decisions about his career the decisions about certain priorities uh, that he's uh, had in life have not always had the gospel as being at the very center of the decision making process and somewhere along the line, nobody quite knows when it happened, but, well, by the time he's in his 40s, he still considers himself to be a Christian, but it's a little bit um, difficult to tell these days. It's not just men, of course, is it? Life can be complex no matter who we are, whether we're married or whether we're single whether we're starting out in life or whether we're into the home stretch of life or, like most of us, somewhere in the middle. There are always factors at play which uh, are working towards, towards weakening our resolve for the gospel and for the Christian life. In Paul's letter to the Christians in Philippi, Paul pictured himself as being a little bit like a, um, a marathon runner in the Olympic Games, which they would have had the original ones back in those days. Uh, and he, he pictures himself as being a marathon runner who's, who's kind of... Uh, uh, he's, he's in the home stretch and he's, he's pressing on, he's straining forward uh, to the finish line, to the goal. And that's what he's working towards rather than uh, stumbling, rather than... Uh, falling by the wayside rather than giving up. Now, over the next couple of months, since we've now finished our series on Exodus 1 to 20, we're going to zip over to the New Testament and uh, spend a couple of months working through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And it's a, it's a beautifully warm and engaging and encouraging letter. Uh, it's not a letter that's been written... Uh, as a matter of urgency by Paul trying to address an urgent issue that's happening in a church like for example uh, with the letter to the Galatians but it's a it's a letter which helps us to understand a bit about church life understand a bit about unity in the church and it's a letter that helps us to press on as Christians uh, through the rough terrain of uh, of life we all need that, don't we? This is a letter for our time. This is a letter for our day. But it's an ancient letter. 
And uh, when we turn to it, which I'd like you to do if you wouldn't mind, in, uh, on page 830 of your Bible or however that works out with your iPhone or iPad or whatever device you happen to be using, uh, it's an ancient letter. And when we turn to it, we look at the first couple of verses in it and we see what, what Paul does here. It's, a, it's really the classical way of introducing a letter where you say who you are and you say who the people are that you're writing to and you offer some kind of a blessing before you move into the main uh, body of the letter. And uh, that's what he does here. And uh, it's a letter that is not just in the name of Paul. We see that it's a letter which is also in the name of, of Timothy, his co-worker. Timothy is a beautiful name, by the way. I love Timothy as a name. If I have another son, which I'm probably not going to do, I'll call him. It means to honour God, uh, to honour God. What a lovely name, right? If you're thinking about getting, having a, expanding your family, Timothy is a wonderful name, to honour God. And uh, some people might expect that uh, Paul might start his letter by introducing himself and saying, I am St. Paul and I'm writing to the followers of, of Jesus in Philippi. But he doesn't do that. He, it's, it's not St. Paul to the Christians in Philippi. It's Paul and Timothy, the servants, writing to the saints in Philippi. Because all Christians are saints. To be a saint means to be someone who has been set apart by God, someone who's been called out of darkness by the gospel and into the light of his glorious kingdom to live differently to the world around. That is to be someone who is set apart and that's what the word saint means. And so it's Paul and Timothy to the saints. And he, he, he singles out amongst the saints in Philippi, he singles out the overseers of the church and uh, people who are referred to here as being deacons. Now, overseers uh, in a church are those who hold responsibility for the overall um, health and ministry of the church. These are the overall leaders of the church. Deacons? Well, it actually means something quite general. It means those who serve. Those who are involved in any kind of serving capacity within the church. Deacon, it means servant. I, I, I don't actually take the view that this is a separate order of a separate kind of being, a separate committee or whatever. It's a deacons, it's those who serve and uh, which uh, in, will include, include people who are involved in a whole gamut of uh, serving within the church. And that's really important when you look, for example, at 1 Timothy, where it uh, says that those who serve must first be tested. It means that you don't just throw anyone into uh, serving roles within the church. Now, they live in the city of Philippi. There's a map on your outline. Has everyone got an outline? You can see the map there. And uh, Philippi is a, it's ruins these days, but it's, uh, it was located <coughs> in what was then part of Macedonia, and it's now uh, northern Greece. And uh, Philippi, uh, was named after the father of Alexander the Great. Can you guess what Alexander's dad's name was if it's called Philippi? His name would have been 
Philip of Macedon, right? Philip of Macedon uh, and his son went and conquered the world, uh, uh, Alexander the Great. But it, although it was in uh, Macedonia, uh, it was actually a very Roman city and it had a very special status within the Roman Empire uh, because of a, um, a particular battle that had taken place there uh, a while earlier, in 42 BC, uh, there was a battle where the, the forces th the, who were loyal to the murdered Julius Caesar, uh, and they were under the command of Octavian, uh, who became Caesar Augustus, and uh, of Mark Antony. Uh, here's some names from your ancient history class at school, isn't it? Uh, so Octavian and Mark Antony, uh, loyal to uh, Julius Caesar, who was, had been deceased, went into a battle against the rebel forces of Brutus and Cassius. And they won. They defeated uh, these rebels. And so Philippi became a very important place in, uh, in Roman thinking, in Roman history, because of the battle, the victory that was won in that place. You know, today Philippi is known around the world for a different kind of victory. It was not a victory uh, between military forces, it was a victory uh, against the powers of darkness. It was a victory of light over darkness. And it's not a victory that on the surface looks particularly impressive, but it's a victory which we remember to this very day. In Acts chapter 16, Paul, on his second missionary journey, was led by the Holy Spirit into Macedonia and specifically to the city of Philippi, where God did some opening up. He opened up the heart of a, of a lady by the name of Lydia. He later opened up some gates, some doors, uh, to a prison where uh, Paul and Titus had been uh, imprisoned. And as a consequence to that, he then opened up the heart of the man who ran the prison, the Philippian jailer, we call him, and opened up the hearts of people in his household. And you know what happens, friends, when you've got one person whose heart is opened by the gospel and responds to the gospel. Then you've got another person who responds to the gospel. Then you've got a household of people who respond to the gospel. What do you now have? You've now got a newborn baby church because a church is a group of people who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and are committed to one another. A new church was born. That's all you need, isn't it? A, a few people who respond to the gospel who then go and tell others about Jesus, and that's your church. And uh, Paul uh, was there in the beginning. It was from his lips that they heard the gospel. Paul, by the way, didn't stay in Philippi for very long. He, he had to leave. That was part of his itinerant ministry, that he was taking the gospel into the world. But when he, when he left Philippi, as the years rolled on, he didn't just forget the Philippian Christians. He didn't just love them and leave them. No, they stayed connected to one another. They stayed engaged in relationship with one another. 
And uh, in verses 12 through to 14, which we'll take a look at next week, we see that when Paul wrote this letter, he had his own finishing line in sight. At least, at least he had every reason to believe so. He was in prison. Most likely he was in prison in Rome and he knew that the possibility of his execution was very realistic. God doesn't always open up the prison gates. Sometimes it's his will for us to suffer, even to die for the sake of the gospel. So Paul uh, had a reasonable expectation that his finishing line was in view. Later on in Philippians, he says, look, whether I'm, you know, I long to be with you in the flesh, but uh, if it's the Lord's will for me to go to be with him in heaven, well, for me to live is Christ, but to die is game. I'm comfortable either way. And so with the, the end point of his own life in view, who was he more concerned about? Himself? No. His concern was for them, the Philippian Christians. Now, can you take a look at how he describes the relationship that he has with these Christians in Philippi? Uh, if you go to verse 5 in chapter 1, he describes his relationship with them as, as a partnership. Do you see that? He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul views their relationship as being a partnership. I have some um, very dear friends who many years ago became Christians after, I don't know how it happened actually, they somehow ended up in our church one day, whether it was that someone had invited them to church or God had just prompted them to come along to church, but they, they turned up in church one Sunday and uh, over time as they heard the gospel and as people in the congregation ministered to them, they, they put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and repented and uh, wanted to live for him now. They, uh, they moved away from port many years ago, but um, they're partners with us and we still stay in touch with one another. Uh, and when uh, Cassie and I go and visit them or they come and visit us, we remember the days when they were just starting out in the Christian life. And I remember the Sunday where they stood here and with, um, with tears in their eyes uh, shared with the congregation, with the church family, how they came to put their trust in Jesus and uh, how they loved him so much because of what he did, did for them on the cross. And when we get together, we talk about the challenges of life the uh, personal and the spiritual challenges of life, their challenges and our challenges. And one way or another, we always end up encouraging each other to press on, to keep on reading the Bible, to keep on praying, to keep on fellowshipping, to keep on trusting, to keep on... You see, that's partnership, isn't it? Uh, sometimes uh, it's, it's engaging with one another, it's being concerned for one another, it's having that common uh, goal for one another. Sometimes the word partnership is translated as fellowship, uh, which is fine. 
It's a, it's a good word to use. But when we think of fellowship, when you think of fellowship, what sort of things come to your mind? You know, I think of the cup of tea you know, with one another after church, you know, fellowship after church. Or I think of you know, what you do on Friday nights, you know, the fellowship on Friday nights. And those things are part of our fellowship, but fellowship is much bigger than that. Fellowship is partnership. And it involves being committed to one another. It involves working together for the same cause. And what is that common cause? Well, in verse 4, it is the gospel. He says uh, in verse 4 and verse, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. These Philippians heard the gospel from the lips of Paul. They believed. They became united as partners. And so Paul is able to say, we've been in partnership from the first day until now, the day he's writing that letter. And from then on. Now, if you flip over to um, chapter 4 for a moment, we see something of what that partnership meant in terms of some of the benefits that Paul received from their partnering with him. In chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, verse 15, Paul says, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel... When I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you, you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. See the partnership? Now, Paul here is he's not angling for more support, is he? That's not why he's writing to them. Uh, far from it, he's actually quite content with what he has. He writes earlier on that uh, whether I'm in need or whether I'm wa in want, I've actually learnt the secret of contentment. Uh, but what he's expressing here is thankfulness for the way that they have, they have, they have cared for him materially so that he could do the work of taking the gospel out into the world. For Paul, the material support was really the icing on the cake. Uh, what really brought joy to his heart was that the material support was a fruit of the partnership, the loving partnership that they had in the gospel now, if you go back to chapter 1, <clears throat> take a look at verse 7. He says in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now the word affection there, it's a <clears throat> affection is actually they've smoothed it out in the English. It's a lot cruder in the original Greek. It means from the bowels. <laughs> it's from you know from deep within my my bowels. That's that's how I feel for you. And 
And uh, the affection of Christ, that's pretty strong stuff when you think about it, isn't it? Because how does Christ express his affection towards us? How did God express his, Jesus express his love to us? Well, it took him to the cross, didn't it? This kind of affection of Christ that Paul's talking about here, it's sacrificial, it's, it's giving, it's, it's costly, it's, it's the I will do anything for you kind of affection that he's feeling and that he's expressing. He's telling him about it. Now, how therefore does Paul, from his point of view, express that partnership through affection? I mean, he's in a prison, probably in Rome. What can he do for them? Well, what he does is he prays for them. Have a look at verse 3. In verse 3 he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. There's a lot of alls in that, isn't there? I always pray for all of you, all the time, with, with joy. Now, do you find it encouraging when a Christian brother or sister speaks to you and they, they say to you, I want you to know that I'm, I'm praying for you? you find that encouraging? I had a Christian brother who said to me, you know, I pray for you every Monday. Monday stands for ministers in my prayers. I get some friends in Canada who write to us every so often and say, I just want you to know we pray for you every Sunday. Every Sunday we're praying for you. And uh, it's encouraging, isn't it? You, you feel encouraged when people tell you that they're praying for you? Well, you know what? Paul goes one step further and he not only tells them that he's praying for them, he tells them what he's praying for them. And uh, what we pray reveals something of what we think is important. Um, have a look at what Paul tells them that he prays for them in verse 9. He says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that, with the purpose that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and the glory of God. What does he pray for them? Well, he prays, firstly, that their love for God and their love for one another would be an overflowing and abounding expression of the knowledge of God and deep insight. Now, let's unpack that. What does it mean? When you think about it, it makes sense that uh, our love for God and our love for other people is connected with knowledge and insight because if we are going to truly love God and love one another, then what's the first step? Well, we actually have to know God, don't we? And how is it that we know God? We know God through his revelation of himself to us. We know God through his word. 
And so we need to know God personally through his word and we need to know how it is that God wants us to love others, even those who do wrong. You see, the world has got it partly right on the issue of love, but not entirely right. Uh, the world does not know the kind of sacrificial, uh, uncompromising, unconditional love which is especially, especially expressed towards enemies that we learn about through God's word. It's, these things are based on the gospel of God's grace. And it's as we understand the gospel that we understand what it, why it is that we should be loving God and how it is that we should be loving other people. Friends, when we take the study of God's word seriously and when we do so with a heart which is thankful for the gospel, then it reshapes us. It reshapes the way that we think. It reshapes the way that we live. So that as we have to negotiate the complexities of life, we're actually able to discern which is the best course to take. Every day we need to respond to situations. And from time to time we need to make choices which take our lives in a particular direction. Sometimes the, sometimes the decision before us is a clear choice, a clear black and white choice, a choice between obeying God and disobeying God. It's clear, it's black and white, if you know God's word, that is. So we have to know God's word. But we've looked at some of those kind of issues in the last few weeks, haven't we, with the Ten Commandments? Well, in the, um, you know, an opportunity where I could murder someone, I'm going to say, well, no, God's word says do not kill, <laughs> or do not bear false testimony, or do not commit adultery, and all of the way that Jesus fleshes that out in Matthew chapter 5. Some decisions are clear, they're black and white. But other issues are not so obvious. Other issues are not so black and white, but they require the kind of wise discernment which comes from being a person who is saturated in God's word or being a person who, like the tree that is planted by streams of living water, has developed a very deep root system, sucking up the nutrients from the soil all your life. And so you're shaped to be a godly person who is able to make wise and godly choices, who's able to, uh, uh, to, to not just be able to make the black and white uh, decisions, but can actually see up the road and around the corner and around a few bends as to where particular actions and responses might take you. For example, let's say I am offered a job this is hypothetical, by the way. I'm quite happy to stay here and quite happy to stay in ministry. But hypothetically, someone is, a person is offered a job and there's nothing wrong with the job. It's a, it's a uh, job which is perfectly legal and it's, um, it's moral. There's nothing particularly immoral about the job. There would be, you'd be breaking no command of God by accepting that job. 
But what about godly discernment? What about, you know, thinking down the road and around a few bends and around a few corners? Where is it actually going to take me? Uh, where is, what impact will that decision have on my Christian life and my ministry? What impact will that decision have on my, spir my spiritual life and the spiritual life and the growth of my family and the Christians whom I'm committed to? I spoke to a young man last week, keen, Christian, mid-twenties. Uh, a few years ago, he picked up his degree from a great university. He's just changed jobs. And we spoke about that, and I asked him about his job and why he made the change, and turns out that his new job will not give him as much money as he could get in another job. Turns out his new job is not going to uh, provide for him the same status that his degree could earn him in a different job. But he said, you know what, Scott, with this new job, I can commit to being in church on Sundays. <laughs> so with this new job, I, I, can, I, can make, I can be pretty certain I'll be at Bible study on Wednesday night. With this new job, I, I can be involved in uh, some of the other ministries of the church. And guess what? I reckon it'll be long term. This is the job I think I'll be in for quite a while, Lord willing. What's he doing? He's thinking up the road and around the corner and he's thinking about the twists and turns in in life and he's negotiating through that. You know, you can't predict the future, but I reckon if he sticks to those kind of priorities, in 20 years' time, someone might be visiting his church and say, hey, there's a guy in his mid-40s. Fantastic, look at his, his community. He's engaging in the church. He's regular, he's upfront, he's leading. He's, wow, you know, why is he here? He shouldn't be here. But he's going to stay the course. There are two men in our church, uh, one who is in, they're not here, one who is in his 80s, the other one who is in his 90s. They are both uh, godly, loving, gospel-centred, ministry-minded men who love Christ and love other people from the bowels of their, <laughs> with the affection of Christ. Beautiful men. One in his 80s, the other in his 90s. Do you know what? A lifetime ago, they were in Sunday school together. And the older one, as a young teenager, was teaching the Bible to the little kid. Taught him well, I reckon. They've stuck it out. They've, um, they're, 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 they're continuing uh, to grow in godliness. They're continuing, they have continued to negotiate the rough terrain of life and they're doing so, I believe, until the day they meet Christ. For one, it won't be far off. And that's Paul's desire. Paul prays for the Philippians as he looks at the finishing line for himself, he prays for them that they would have such love and knowledge and insight 
that they will last the distance and that they will keep on trusting and keep on growing in Christ until the day they meet him, either because he returns or because they go to be with him in glory. That their whole lives, not just the beginning of their lives, but their whole lives would give honour and glory and praise to God. I think it's been well said that it's not how you start the Christian life that counts, it's how you finish that counts. What about yourself? Is that your goal for your own life? Is it your goal that you'll not fall by the wayside, not run out of steam, not give up three quarters of the way through, not even just limp over the line, but that you'll cross that line well? Is that your goal? Then if it is, in what sense is that being reflected in your commitment now to know God better through his word? In what way is that being reflected by uh, taking up opportunities to learn God's word, being here in church, engaging with other Christians during the week, learning God? What about reading God's word, dare I say it, daily? Is your desire to keep on pressing on as a Christian being reflected in the way that you saturate and soak yourself and drink from the word of God. And friends, what about your desire and your goal for others? The other important people in your life, uh, your family, your, uh, your church friends here, the other people who God has placed in your life along the track. Is, it your, is that your desire for them? Is it your desire for the, your children that they would st stay firm for Christ and grow in him and be strong and mature and be fruitful all the days of their lives? Is it your desire for your parents? Is it your desire for those who you're in Bible study group with and who you meet here in church? Then if so, how is that reflected in your prayers? Because it should change our prayer life, shouldn't it? It should mean that we actually be devoted to praying for people. As Paul did always, at all times, for all of the Philippians, to be, it should mean that we're people who pray. And it should shape not only that we pray, but also the content of our prayers. So that no matter what else we might be praying for people, and it's valid, Paul says later in Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, bring your requests to God. You can pray for anything, health and finance and all sorts of things, relationships, but no matter what else we pray for one another, we should be praying for each other and for our families and for our Christian friends that they would stay on track for the gospel, that they would keep on negotiating through the rough terrain of life, that they would be living godly and upright lives, serving, loving, trusting in Jesus until the day of Christ Jesus, to the praise and the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the gospel. 
We want to thank you for that great love of the Lord Jesus Christ that was committed and, and uh, 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 unconditional love that's brought us forgiveness and brought us new life and eternal life. Father, we want to pray for ourselves that we would not be swayed by the temptations of this life, the, uh, that we would not be seduced by uh, career and money and wealth and all of those things. Father, that we would be uh, people who are committed purely to Christ and that we would live with him and for him all our days. Help us to know your word and help us to be wise and discerning that we make choices that are going to achieve that end goal. Father, we pray for those we love. We pray for our families. We pray for friends who have passed through our church here or passed through our lives and are serving you in other areas. And we just do pray for them that they would be persevering for you. We thank you that we have partnership in the gospel. We pray for those who, we, uh, we've, who have taken Christ elsewhere uh, for David and Melissa in Albury, for Ian and Karen in the Southern Highlands, for James and Leanne in China, and, and for Perry and Karen in the Middle East. We pray for them, Lord God, that um, they would be sticking it out and uh, faithfully trusting and loving and serving you all their days and that you would bring much fruit from their ministries. And so we ask all of these things now in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.